pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menners, and my very, very special guest this week was described by Justin Langer as being one of the greats of Western Australian cricket. I'm talking about the recently retired Adam Voges. Adam played 20 tests for Australia and 31 one-day internationals and had a fine career averaging over 60 with the bat in test cricket and almost 50 with the bat in one-day internationals. Congratulations on all his achievements and welcome to the show, Adam Voges. All right, Adam, thanks so much for making the time for the Australian Cricket Podcast and the listeners. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, Yeah, pleasure to be on uh, with you. Yeah, now um, you go straight to the top of the list of highest test batting averages of anyone I have ever interviewed, and I think I'm going to have a tough time beating it. So for the listeners that don't know, it's Dom Bradman, 99.94, and then Adam Voges, 61.87 as a test average. You know, how, since you've retired, have you reflected on that stunning success you had in the 20 tests you played? Um, oh yeah, look, I, I sit back fondly and and um, think about what was what was a pretty good uh, couple of years of of Test match cricket. Obviously, uh, debuting at 35 and, and getting a late chance, it was probably a career that at certain points I, I thought may never have happened. So yeah, look, I, I was lucky enough to to eventually play 20 Tests for Australia. I, I loved every minute of it, and, and the fact that I was able to contribute uh, the majority of the time during that um, during that period was was really pleasing. Now, just honestly, when you log on to your computer, is your home page set as the table with you just between Don Bradman and Steve Smith on the test run averages? <laughs> uh, no, 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 it's not. No, look, and it is. It's 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 obviously nice to to sit where I where I sit, but no, it's it's not something that I um I, I sit around and, and think about too much. Obviously, Steve Smith's going great guns at the moment. Hopefully, hopefully he can overtake me. I, I'd love to see that because if he can do that, and he's been playing for a, for a long period, but if he can do that, that means that he'll be leading Australia extremely well and, and that uh, we're in we're in pretty good hands. He's right on your tail. His average is 61.05, so not much in it. Um, do you realise that last summer when your average wavered around 100 at times during particular innings, do you realise how much joy you gave statisticians and fans and just people on social media? It was, it was dizzying times when you sort of had your average floating around 100. Uh, what was it like in the dressing room, though? Did you get a lot of a stick from your teammates? Yeah, I did. I, I probably made the mistake of, I think, in a in a media interview after one of the day's plays, saying that I was a bit uncomfortable with the comparisons when my average was was sort of that high, and a lot of the boys caught wind of that. And um, yeah, my nickname was Don for a little while there, which didn't really sit well with me. But I think the fact that they knew I didn't like it meant that um, <laughs> meant that it stuck for a little while. So um, yeah, look, it, it was um, yeah again, it was during that period of time things were going pretty well. I was I was scoring runs, but um, yeah, I, I was probably a little uncomfortable with the comparisons. Yeah, it's a tough one though, isn't it? If you, you know, you can't say you're comfortable or uncomfortable because either way, your teammates teammates are going to get on you. But I can tell you, statisticians loved it. <laughs> well, that's good. 
Now, when I was preparing for this interview, I had a, a listen to and a, I watched your post, your retirement uh, press conference, and um, you were sitting next to a very tearful Justin Langer. And I think he cried enough for both of you at your retirement press conference. But he said a lot of lovely things about you. One of them was that you were, like Adam Gilchrist, able to be both a leader and one of the boys in the dressing room. I was just wondering how you managed to tread that line of being one of the boys but also a leader. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's probably something that I, I hadn't really thought about until um, Justin Langer did mention it um, in that in my retirement press conference. But, oh, look, I, it wasn't something that I purposely set out to do. I think it's just a bit of my nature, really, that obviously I'd been around West Australian set up for a long time and had captained and, and had some success as captain, but um, was still very happy to be part of the, the celebrations and be part of the... Um, playing with the boys and obviously there was quite a generational gap between um, a lot of the players and myself towards the end. I, I think we had Cameron Green debut. He was 17 so he was the best part of 20 years younger than me but yeah look I think it was it was just a part of, of who I was really rather than sort of purposely going out to, to try and, and fill both roles. And how then did you, you know, have the sort of hard conversations you have to have with players and sort of still maintain relationships? I think honesty is the key to that. Um, I was just honest with the boys as often, well, 100% of the time. I, I, I told them the truth. I told them sometimes stuff that they didn't want to hear, but I think they appreciated it when it did come from me because they they knew I, I sort of didn't beat around the bush with those sort of things. So, yeah, look, there's a lot of those hard conversations still had to be had. But to the boys' credit, they, they took it well. And um, I think there's that mutual respect there. And the honesty, I think, like I said, was, was probably key to all of that. Yeah, now, in the 2014-15 domestic season, you had a stellar Shield summer scoring 1,358 runs at over 100. What sort of took your game to that level? Did anything click or yeah, how did you run into that stellar form? Uh, I think uh, I think it had been building for a little while. I think the season before I'd had a, a pretty good year. I think I'd scored eight or nine hundred runs, and I'd made a few technical changes and worked pretty closely with with JL um, when he came back on board as, as coach of Western Australia. And um, it, it really was just a progression from there and built and built. And then I got into that season and scored runs early and, and confidence was sky high and was just able to maintain it throughout throughout the majority of the year. I think there was a number of factors, um, no doubt, um, a, a few little minor tweaks technique-wise, but um, I think um, having that extra responsibility of the captaincy seemed to work well for me. And, yeah, it was, again, it was just a combination of a lot of little things. I got into some good form, had plenty of confidence about my game and and just rode the way for as long as I could. I guess, did Justin Langer really come in and sort of help you, um, you know, find out any holes in your game? Did he make a big difference to your, your batting? Oh, no doubt. And I, and I still think to this day that if it wasn't for him coming back and, and, and coming back into the, the Western Australian setup and helping not only myself but a lot of the young Western Australian guys around at the time, that he, he was able to take my game to a new level. And a lot of it, a little bit of it was technical. There wasn't a heat there, but he sort of, he pushed me, he took me out of my comfort zone. I'd been in the state system for a long time and 
um, he, he just took me out of that comfort zone and, and just encouraged me to, to try and keep getting better. And um, I think I've got no doubt that that helped a lot. Yeah, Justin seems a lot more in, intense than you are. You know, I've seen a lot of your interviews and, you know, you seem very relaxed and laconic. You've got a very balanced view of life. But but JL's so in, intense when he focuses on something, he just puts all his focus into that um, result. Is, is that what he's like to work with? And do you think he could bring that to the Aussie setup? Yeah, oh, there's no doubt. And if you knew JL as a player, um, he was probably even more intense, to be fair. I think he's, he probably won't like me saying this, but I think he's probably mellowed a little bit as a coach. So, yeah. I, I, I remember guess. when they had to hold him back from going on the field when he got hit in the head. Maybe it was in South Africa, or and they, they had a test series on the line, and Ponting, Ponting was telling everyone, well, we'll hold him back from going out to bat if we have to. So he must be That's right. intense. Yeah. He, he tells that story well, actually. But um, yeah, no. But that 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 sums up JL really, and and all through his career, the determination and the work ethic that he had, and the intensity that he had, was probably second to none. And yeah, yes, he brings a lot of those good traits into his coaching. But I think as a coach, he sort of developed and, and realised that the way he went about it isn't the way that everyone else is going to go about it. So I think he's learnt really well from from that point of view. And, and as a combination, as, as him as coach and me and cap, uh, as captain, I think, yes, we are different personalities, but I think we complemented each other really well. Yeah, I think you'd make a good fist of the Aussie coaching job when Darren Lehman eventually retires. What do you think about JL taking over the national side? Oh, I think it, I think he'd be a perfect fit if he wants the job. I mean, um, I think he's stated previously and he's, he's taken over a tour to the West Indies and he obviously looked after the 2020 series uh, last summer. Um, so I think he stated that he has that desire to become the next Australian coach. And um, whenever it is that Buff decides to, to finish up, then I think JL would be an, an excellent replacement. And um, I think he'd bring a... A lot to the to the setup again. Buff and JL are, are very different characters, um, and coaching styles are, are very different. But I think they're equally as effective as each other. And like, yeah, if if JL wants a job, I think he'd do a terrific job. Now, when I'm sort of trying to look at somebody that I'm interviewing, I always try and find a moment from their career that I think really typifies what sort of person they are and what they're all about. And and this is going to be a strange one, but the moment from your career that stands out for me sort of your strength and your fo- your balance on the way you viewed life was that in 2009 you were selected for a one-day tour of South Africa, but you declined the invita- invitation because you'd already planned to get married. Um, can you just explain how you came about that decision? Yeah, uh, yeah, that was, that was obviously an interesting time in my career. It was very early on in my, in my one-day career. I think I'd only actually played one ODI at that stage. And, um, yeah, look, I, I had plans to get married. I, I wasn't actually batting very well during that summer and, uh, was, was just sort of battling away for Western Australia and all of a sudden scored a few runs towards the back end and got picked in the one day series for that summer. Uh, didn't actually play a game, uh, but then was selected to go to South Africa and that clashed with, um, with, with the wedding date and, uh, to be fair to my wife, she said, "Look, we can we can um, we can change the plans. We can we can do the wedding at another time." And I, I spoke to her. I, I sat down and spoke with with JL a little bit about it. Um, I spoke to my parents. I spoke to a lot of people who were close to me um, at the time, and came up with the decision that 
Uh, yes, look, it's it's a, it's a terrific honour to, to be picked on a one-day tour. Um, but uh, for me, to get married was was something that uh, I felt was was more important at the time. And uh, if I had my way again, I, I wouldn't have changed my decision. I, um, I in a way, I, I guess I was backing myself to be good enough to get another selection. And to be fair to the selectors, they they said, look, we we understand your decision, but we can't guarantee you any further selection, which was totally acceptable um, from my point of view and yeah so we we I came to that decision and 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 got married and very happily married still with a couple of kids and and now that I've finished my career that that uh yeah I'm I'm sure that's going to pay dividends but um yeah look at the time I I backed myself to be good enough to get another opportunity and I went away to Nottingham after I got married we didn't have a honeymoon I went straight to Trent Bridge and played some county cricket and um I think Within sort of six months, I'd, I'd got another opportunity to get back in the one-day squad. So, fortunately, it all it all worked out pretty well. Yeah, I think from from my point of view, your commitment and tenacity that you had to your then fiance was the same sort of commitment that got you to the top level of cricket. So, I think sort of they go hand in hand that decision and the success you had in your career. Yeah, and I think uh, no doubt the decision probably divided many. I, I, I know there was. Uh, I read a few comments at the time, and and copped a bit of flack from some quarters, and other quarters, other people were sort of um, in favour of my decision. So yeah, look, I understood that it, it divided people at the time. It, it was my choice, and, and that was the one that I made, and and I'm still very happy with it. Yeah, and is that sort of part of your philosophy in cricket that you wanted to maintain a balance of what happens outside of cricket? You know, have a full rounded life. Yeah, I think that's really important, and I think the more balance you can have outside of cricket, I've got no doubt, has a has a huge impact on the way you do play your cricket. I think as a younger guy, putting a hundred percent focus into my game, uh, while it helped me a little bit, was was ultimately probably holding me back a little bit as well, um, as as dealing with the failures that that do come along with the game, um, I probably struggled with. So. To find that balance and to have um, a bit of perspective about the game itself, I think no doubt helped me in the long run. Certainly did. So let's fast forward now. You had that amazing 2014 Sheffield Shield season. You were then selected to play for Australia. You went to the West Indies and you made 130 not out on Test debut. How satisfying was it to know that you were good enough to play Test cricket? Oh yeah, it was. I mean, it was it was hugely satisfying. It was a, that was the biggest highlight of my life. It had been what I I was waiting for and, and and playing and training for since the time I could pick up a bat to to represent Australia and and get a baggy green. So um, I, I guess first of all to get the phone call from Rod Marsh to say that I was picked on the tour. Um, I was probably in a little bit of disbelief then. I went to the West Indies not knowing if I'd play, if I'd play one test, if I'd play all the tests, uh, if I'd be running the drinks. I wasn't really sure what to expect. So um, to get the, the tap on the shoulder the, the day before the game from Mark War and, and just say, right, you're ready to go. And I probably can't repeat what I said back to him, but I was pretty excited at the time. And um <laughs> Yeah, and then to, to obviously go out and, and, and score 100 on debut and win a test match for Australia, it was something I'll certainly never forget. Had you had you almost given up hope of, of playing test cricket? Because, I mean, even just before they selected you, there was this whole policy of picking, you know, youth 
young players and looking to the future, and then they sort of change, the selectors change tact. I mean, what were you thinking leading into that selection? Yeah, when I got the phone call from Rod Marsh, I I was still in a bit of disbelief. Yeah, probably because I didn't think it was was going to happen. I I knew I'd had a good season and um, I'd been speaking to to J.O. a fair bit about it and he said, I I think you might be getting picked. I said, no, mate, I'm I'm too old. They won't pick me. But... um, yeah, look, I, to, yeah, to get that phone call and and to um to realise that I was actually going to go and play on a, on a test tour was was something really special. And and I guess I hadn't completely given up hope. I, I think I looked at, at guys like Mike Hussey and, and Chris Rogers who were able to um, after plugging away in first class career for a long, long time, um, be able to still have successful test careers at the back end. Well, I mean, I think Huss was thirty and. And, and Buck was really nearly my age as well. So um, I think that gave me that, that little glimmer of hope. But it was probably hope that was fading at the time, for sure. Now in your 20 tests, you had some great notable highlights. You had a Boxing Day test century. You also scored a century at your home ground at the Wacker. Do you think the fact that you were a little bit older helped you appreciate the success you had while it was happening? Uh, yeah, possibly. I think when you're, you're in the... You're in the bubble, I guess, of of Test cricket. You're sort of you're focused on what's going on and being as present as you can be. But yeah, I guess so. I think you you always sort of sit down and reflect on on what you've been able to achieve. But um, I think coming in at my age, I knew I wasn't going to be there forever. I knew it was going to be for a short time, so I was going to hopefully make it as good a time as possible. And, and fortunately, I was able to do that for the majority. And what is the highlight of, of your test centuries or your test innings? Which one you know stands out for you? Oh, they're, they're all unique in their own way. But if I have to pick one, I still think my 100 at the Wacker uh, against New Zealand. It was probably not my best innings. It was, uh, it was on a pretty flat wicket. Uh, but the fact that it was at home, uh, all my friends, all my family were there to watch it, uh, was probably the most special moment for me. But like I said, all of them are all unique in their own way and, and so it certainly won't forget any of them in, in any time soon. You know, in the two years at Test Cricket, you had some great wins, a lot of fantastic wins, but you were also there for a change of captaincy when Michael Clark retired and Steve Smith took over. Did you notice any sort of change in the dressing room or the character when Smudge came in? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's no doubt. There's a there's a change uh, when you get a new leader. You've you've gone from uh, a legend in the game, Michael Clark, who's played over 100 Test matches, to a young pup in Steve Smith, who everyone could see what an absolute talent that he is. Um, but then for him to to take over the leadership and, and the and the, the captaincy of, of Australia is obviously a huge role. So. There was certainly that transition phase where um, Steve was was finding his feet a little bit, and um, to his credit, I, I think he's done a wonderful job since his since his appointment. I think um, his batting speaks for itself. He leads the way in terms of his runs, but his captaincy is very astute as well. And um, it was good to be able to stand next to him during my time in the slips corner there, and just bounce some ideas off him and and, um, and hopefully I was able to help him a little bit along the way as well. But uh, I think he's done a fantastic job so far. Yeah, and what is sort of his strengths as a leader, you know, as a character in the dressing room? Yeah, look, he... he um He's very he's very firm in in his beliefs, and um, he's not gonna he's not gonna tolerate a lot from a lot of the guys that that isn't in line with with what uh, he wants the team to be doing. He um, 
he, he's adventurous in terms of his field placements and his bowling changes, which are which I quite like. But he's always he's willing to learn as well, and he's willing to realise that he's not going to get it right every single time. Um, but he's, he's learning from each and every time that he goes out and does it. And I, I think that's really important as a leader. Um, and most of all, obviously, he, he leads the way with the bat, which, in my opinion, as a, as a captain, uh, is is one of the more, more important things he can do. And I guess how hard. Do you did you find it, and I guess it would be the same for Steve Smith in juggling, preparing your own batting and getting ready for an innings, but also looking after the team. Yeah, and that's something that I probably struggled with a little bit to start with when I when I took over the reins at Western Australia. Just finding that balance between where are you putting your focus and your energy into? Are you putting enough into your own game, or are you putting enough into the team's game? And yeah, look, I, I that that worried me for the first particularly probably the first half of the season when I took over WA. But, yeah, look, I, I was able to speak to some other senior players around the place and the general message was if you've got your own game in order, then a lot of the rest of it will look after itself. So um, I, I took that on board and realised that if as long as I was contributing and my game was going well, then then I knew that that was a less of a stress for me come game time and then I was able to put a bit more focus into what the team needed or tactically or, or that sort of thing. So it was always good to have a lot of hands around and a lot of voices to, to sort of turn to. Um, but ultimately, I was the one who had to make final decisions. But I knew that at least if I was contributing well with the bat, then that would certainly help uh, along the way. Now, you played with two of the best post-war batsmen for Australia, Steve Smith and Ricky Ponting. Which one do you think of them will go down as being the best since Bradman, perhaps? Uh, well, it's it's tough to make that comparison just at the moment. Um, I think uh, if you ask me in another five years' time when, when, when Smitty's got another five, six thousand test runs to his name, then, then maybe we can sort of make that comparison. But... Yeah, look, obviously Ricky Ponting is an absolute legend of Australian cricket and world cricket. And, yeah, to, to make comparisons to him, um, you're obviously going to have to be a, a damn fine player, which which I have no doubt Steve Smith is. But um, I think it's a little bit early in his career to be making those comparisons just yet. All right, so we'll wait another 6,000-odd test runs. The way, the way <laughs> yeah. Smith's going, it'll only be a few years. That's right. Now, before I let you go, I just want to ask you a couple of quick questions about some of the issues in world cricket at the moment. One of them, which is you had some experience with, which was, was concussion on the field. Now, you were hit last November batting. You were hit in the field with a return throw and uh, had to miss some cricket. Do you think it's time for concussion substitutes in first-class cricket worldwide? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I think uh, having having gone through it firsthand and experienced what it's all about, I, I was I was pretty lucky for the majority of my career where I was I managed to avoid head injuries pretty well, and then and then managed to cop a couple of decent concussions within the space of six months. But um, yeah, having having gone through that process, and, and certainly now uh, the way that concussion is managed from a medical point of view. As a player, you, you never want to be taken out of the game. I think um, you, you're desperate to be able to contribute as much as possible. But when when you are deemed to have concussion, you actually get no say in in that. Um, you, you're ruled out by the medical staff, and and it takes a lot of pressure off the player, I guess, to want to try and keep going, even though they probably know they're not quite right. But in my opinion, if you're if you're being removed 
from the game by a medical officer because of your safety, then I think a concussion sub is the logical way to go. And I think Cricket Australia have done a good job in, in bringing forward the trial um, for the next couple of years in, in domestic cricket here in Australia. Hopefully it doesn't have to get used too often, but I think it's the right step moving forward. Yeah, it's, it's a, a difficult situation for a player because if you know if he's trying to not let his team down, he might want to come back and play. Like we're talking about Justin Langer before, but you know you're really not in control of your faculties when you've got concussion, so you need to take them out of the game. And I think the ICC has got to push forward with this issue. Yeah, I think so. And, and look, there will always be the counter argument. Well. If you're pulling someone, if you get a substitute for concussion, why can't you get a substitute for other injuries? And look, I, I understand that, that there's that side of the argument, but I think obviously everyone's acutely aware that if you if you do have concussion, then it does slow down your your decision making um, processes, and and then that can put you in real harm's way. So um, yeah, I, I think it's the right step forward to, to introduce the to the, the substitute. Um, the, the, sorry, the concussion subs, and um, yeah, like, like I said, they, they brought forward this trial, and, and hopefully, like I said, we don't have to say it too often, but I think it's the right move. In another, the ICC has talked about introducing a test championship. Is that something that you know you, as just a recently retired test player, is that something that the test group talks about that they they want a championship, that they want some context because the media, the fans, all want it, but where do the players sit on it? Yeah, well, players talk about rankings and, and where the teams sit so um, I think probably the next step to that is to have a test championship I think any way that you can give more and more games of cricket more context to them uh, it can only be a good thing uh, yeah and if, if if that's the way of doing it then yeah I see that as a good thing if Australia are playing to try and become test champions over a certain period of time then regardless of who they're playing at the time it brings that extra sort of context to the to the to the competition so uh yeah i i, I think that's a good thing too uh, you're heading off um soon to play county cricket in middlesex for middlesex is that is that it for you do you finish this season or could you go a little bit longer uh yeah i'm flying i'm flying out this afternoon actually but um yeah uh oh look i i haven't put a complete time frame on, on county cricket i'm going to see how this next um, few months ago, uh, I really enjoy playing over at Middlesex. It's a it's a wonderful club. I get to play at Lords every second week, which isn't a bad bad place to be driving into oh, work. Beautiful. But um, yeah, it's no. I look, while I'm in, while I'm enjoying my cricket and while I think I can contribute, and and as long as my body can hold up, then I won't completely rule out going around again. But um, I'm just going to sort of see how we go at the end of this season. I'm looking forward. I'm hopefully going to run around with the Scorchers again this season in the Big Bash. And I'm Defending looking forward champs. to doing that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that. But, yeah, in terms of whether I'd go on beyond this county season, we'll, we'll make that decision in a little while. So when you pull up, pull up the put up the boots, pull up the bat, put it away. What's next for Adam Voges? Do you want to get into media? Do you want to do a cookbook a la Matt Hayden style? What's next for Adam Voges? Uh, it would be a pretty short cookbook if it was a cookbook. But no, look, um, there's a bit of there's coaching. a bit of coaching on the horizon. I'm I'm certainly getting involved in the West Australian setup uh, when I get home for for the summer coming up, and I, I look forward to getting involved in that. There'll be hopefully. A, a little bit of media along the way during the summer as well. It's a it's a big summer with the, an Ashes series coming up, and I'm looking forward to watching that. So, yeah, I, look, I I love the game of cricket, and, and hopefully I can and can 
not be too far away from it when once I do actually finally put the bat down for the last time. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time today on the Australian Cricket Podcast. I really appreciate it. I know you are heading off today, so really good you made time for the listeners, and thanks again. Cheers, Andrew. Thank you. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Adam Voges. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Now, don't forget, you can rate, review, and review the show on iTunes. We still have the Have A Go Your Mug Mug competition going, so if you can review the show on iTunes or whatever app you listen to the show on and then email me in, you will go in the draw for a Have A Go Your Mug Mug. Uh, but thanks again to Adam Voges, and I'll be back next week with another panel show. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of this series.